John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. <laughs> Welcome once again to The Cinephiles. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hey, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in California, CEO of the Outlaw Nation. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm ready to talk about what we're going to talk about today, man. Well, this is a, I mean, this is a weird time. And obviously, you know, you notice by looking at the title of this episode that we're not doing a movie right now. Yeah. Our intention this week was we were going to release Brief Encounter, which is one of my favorite romantic films and maybe not exactly one of John's favorites. And well, we had a I great, would say possibly not at the beginning, but maybe by the end. You guys um, find out later on. And we had a great discussion about it. But then looking at what was going on in the world and we just suddenly went you know what now's not the time now's not the time to you know we love talking about movies on this podcast we're going to get back to talking about the movies on this podcast but there's a lot of very difficult stuff happening and john and i both have very strong emotions about what's going on and we just felt like we needed to talk about it and he and here's kind of what happened is that we got a wonderful suggestion for a cinephile short um and that suggestion was uh to discuss art and politics and is art inherently political do artists have a responsibility to d talk about their time how do we handle political issues within art and john and i recorded this about a week and a half ago yeah. and we had a great discussion and then as what has happened in the last five or six days started to occur i started to feel real uncomfortable because i just went I don't think we can release this discussion that was recorded before all the protests and riots mm -hmm. and before the president did what the president has done without having some explanation. So, so what we finally decided to do is we're going to, instead of releasing that short uh, only to our Patreon members, we're going to release it right here. But yeah. before we get to it, I want to, I feel like we need to just take a moment to talk about what's going on right now. And, and because here's the thing is that, the question that we were asked was, do artists have a responsibility to talk about what's going on in the world? Yeah. And my main answer when we recorded that was, no, artists' first job is to entertain. Yeah. And that's not how I'm feeling right now. Hmm. 
you know, right now, I'm feeling like we have a responsibility to talk about what's going on, that we have a, that we have a platform, I have a microphone, yeah. and that I have a lot of emotions, and that we need to talk about this because it's only through talking about things that we can move past things or make things better. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I think that's when we were, uh, you know, when Steve reached out last night, we were kicking around the idea of doing the show or not doing, or I'm sorry, dropping the episode or not dropping the episode. Um, he mentioned the politics talk, and I know Steve had gone back and forth about it, uh, whether we should release it or not. Or And uh, um, he almost killed it to do a little behind the scenes thing because he yeah. felt, you know, it wasn't the right time to drop something like this, but I encouraged him to listen to it again. Uh, and I felt we had a great discussion and, and uh, Steve uh, f- felt that way as well by the end after listening to it again. And so we, but we, we, the caveat that Steve mentioned, the caveat that we would do a new intro for it. So that's why we're doing this and to talk about everything that's happening and see what's going on and also touch base with some of you all that might be like, well, I don't know if I feel like listening to a Cinephiles episode today. Uh, as much as some of you may want to escape, I think it's good to hear from us about how we feel about it. And maybe we can bring you some kind of peace or calm or, or, or feel a sense like, you know, you're being heard um, or that other people feel the same way that you do about it. Cause I know for me, the, on Monday I was okay. When I woke up on Monday morning, I mean, the protests were insane. I wasn't in town. I was down in San Diego. Um, and I don't mean the protests were insane. I mean, what happened afterwards, the protests, I mean, the rioting, the looting, the police getting involved and doing the things they were doing to agitate. Like there was a lot of blame, I think, on both sides, depending on what city you were looking at. And so watching people march through cities and places of that I like have lived near literally feet away from for a number of years and then eventually marched through Beverly Hills itself I was incredibly surprised by that and then incredibly surprised by the devastation and the anger. The looting really pissed me off. Uh, uh, The attack, uh, the instigation by the police, the shooting of rubber bullets, the swinging of batons, the pushing down of people, the using of shields, all of that just really infuriated me because it was like watching two people fight who you're like, there's no need to do this on either side. This was a peaceful protest. Let it be peaceful. And let's move on. And then you heard about outside agitators and you heard about and you saw, you know, uh, videos or images of white people dressed in all black who were going in there and, you know, purposely instigating the police or tagging businesses with their uh, uh, spray paint. I saw that at the Starbucks that I, we go to a lot over there at the Grove, seeing two young women tagging it. And when they were confronted by black women, they turned around and tried to put their hands up to tell them to calm down because they were telling them to stop tagging this stuff because it was the black protesters who were being hurt and beat up by the police because they're not going to go after white kids. And so all of that, and to see them like try to calm them down and try to be like, no, don't tell us we're fighting for you. And it's like, no, you're not, you're causing problems. And that frustrated me too, because that's privileged white shit in a different format. So all of it just kind of frustrated me on so many levels because I think all of this could have been avoided with just letting the protests happen and then dispersing the crowd at the end and saying, okay, the protest is over. You guys have to go home. Uh, and that's that, you know, the looters who came in and took stuff from people who have businesses that are barely making it after the COVID situation. I have no sympathy for them. Now I don't advocate shooting them and all that. I saw uh, sadly, I saw a friend of mine advocate that on Twitter that caused a real big battle. And I don't advocate that, but I certainly feel like these rooters and these, uh, uh, looters and some of the rioters, uh, were obscuring the cause 
uh, of what was the, the point of the protests, which was to protest the murder of George Floyd and the murder of those uh, Ahmed Aubrey and the young lady, Brianna Taylor, I think her name was, and, uh, you know, all of those murders. And so I thought you give ammunition to the other side by doing stuff like that to completely distort the protests for their own political benefit. And that frustrated me. Well, you, you gave a very measured and balanced uh, discussion of this. Yeah. And, and I want to tell you how I'm feeling because sure. normally that's how I want to talk. I mean, like, I feel like, you know, those who listen to the show, like I really don't, I don't generally feel that attacking the other side is useful as a level of discourse. Yes. I don't generally feel that uh, disparaging people helps bring them to your side. Right. And I've spent, I would say the last 15, 20 years of really, really trying to reach out to people that don't agree with me, mm -hmm. to have intelligent discussions with them, yep. to uh, respect that they come, people come from a different place with a different experience, with a different philosophy and different yep. priorities. And I even like when we first started this podcast, I had a blog called A Civil Voice, which I haven't really added to in, in a few years, but that was its whole point was to have a civil discussion about things so that we can resolve these really complicated issues as a society. And I feel, and this is what I feel happened to me in the last four days, that I feel like I spent the last 20 years wasting my time. Yeah. That, oh, wow. That, that I didn't get anywhere. Huh. And, and even though my philosophy is still, we have to talk to each other. We have to learn to be reasonable. Mm -hmm. We have to accept that the other side has a point and real feelings and represents values and that the, uh, and we shouldn't demonize those yeah. people that we disagree with. And if you listen to what we're going to play in a moment, you're going to mm -hmm. hear me saying exactly those things. And my feeling right now is a lot of anger and that that I've I'm suddenly a per you know, it's funny, there's a person on Facebook who I disagree with politically, and she and I have gone round and round for a decade. Yeah. And, and I said something about uh, President Trump. And she said, well, we feel the same way about Obama. And I said, if you try to compare them, I will unfriend you, which yeah. I would never have said last week, mm -hmm. is that I am tired of the false narrative that these things are equivalent. I am tired yeah. of the normalization of what our president has done. I am tired of the lack of acknowledgement of systemic racism within our society. I am tired of the equivalency between actions of the police and actions of the looters. Nobody, nobody I have heard of, no reasonable person has said the looting is justified or right. good. Right. Every single reasonable person that I have heard has condemned the looting just as you did, just as I do. But that does not compare to the actions I've seen of the police over the last week. Yeah. Because, and this is my feeling, and, and, and I'm going to express myself in a way that I rarely do because I'm angry, mm -hmm. is that my feeling is that I do not hold police officers who I generally respect and have always been a respectful law-abiding citizen. I do not hold them to the same standard I hold ordinary citizens to. I hold them to a higher standard. I am a firm believer in with great power comes great responsibility. Yep. And what I have seen in the actions of the police of pepper spraying unarmed people who are peacefully protesting, arresting people who are speaking in a way that is 
peaceful. Like there's that guy who's saying to the police how he loves them and they drag him away and handcuff him. I, you know, the attacks on the press on the press. Yeah. And not only do I find that it is, and here's the thing is that this is a protest that was caused by systemic racism and the maltreatment of African-Americans throughout 400 years of American history. And the fact that the police would respond with brutality, not all of them, of course. Right. And, there, and many, I mean, and there, you know, there's so many instances that, that made me weep of, of, of police officers kneeling down with the protesters, of marching with the protesters, of stripping off the riot gear and saying, we are with you. And you see the effect that that has, yeah. that they are met with joy and with love and with hugs. And, that, and then you see this other side of them. Mm-hmm. And I am so angry about it that i couldn't release that short episode talking about you know freedom of speech and all the things that i really believe in without first saying that we're in a moment in american history that is unique not only in my lifetime but in our entire history this does not compare to watergate you know the only thing that we're (laughs) close to is the civil war you know, is that there is a fracturing of what the values of American society are. And it's funny, I know I've always been a believer in that Martin Luther King hope quote of that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And that's what I always believe. And so yeah. even though there was, you know, one step back and two steps forward and then three steps back. And, you know, even though we had those moments, I always thought we were bending towards justice. And I think what happened this last weekend was that faith in that concept for me got broken and it made me angry. Yeah, you know, we've talked off camera, you and I, but by the way, those are excellent words, Steve. Um, you and I have talked off camera, and I've been saying this for a couple of years now, and Michael Vogel will back this up, fellow geek buddy. I have said that we are heading towards a civil war, and I saw it from the first year of Trump's presidency. The anger that built from one side towards Obama, President Obama, was at times shocking, overwhelming. People tried to twist narratives to make him into a terrible person. Whether there was racism behind that, I think, is, a, is up to each person individually. Whether there was legitimate issues with political points of views are up to each person individually. But I feel that things were that they saw a strong Democratic black man in office who was beloved by the world beloved by a majority of Americans, so much so that all that vitriol, he still got reelected by a sizable margin the second time around. So much so that in the end, you could say whatever your anger was towards him, he did the right thing most of the time. In comes Trump, which was a complete and utter shock to me. And I'll I'll reveal this now in a way that I I don't think I've ever said this before, but Part of why I wanted to commit suicide the night I wanted to commit suicide, if you look at the, the day, it was the day after Trump was elected, or the night that Trump was elected. I had an overwhelming sense of hopelessness that consumed me to the point that was beyond anything I've ever experienced in my life. And ending my life seemed easier or the smarter move than proceeding forward with a man like this in the presidency. Because I had a belief, an instinctual gut belief that this man would destroy the fabric of our society, destroy the foundations of our democracy in ways that we've never seen before. We've had corrupt administrations before, we've had corrupt presidents before, but they were always held to task by a system of checks and balances, even Nixon. And people go back and look, it wasn't all Republicans going, you know, Nixon, you got to get out of here. There were a lot of people who supported Nixon 
at that time, but he, but eventually enough Republicans saw the light and had him impeached for what he did. Trump has done far worse, far worse in his corruption and in his, uh, his, uh, his uh, misuse of the office, his rhetoric, um, which he uses to inflame Americans to fight amongst each other because he isn't going to care. He's going to fly off in his golden helicopter to his golden tower. And if things get really crazy in this country, he'll take off in his golden plane to some place where he can't be touched while the rest of us kill each other. And that is heartbreaking. And that's what consumed me that night. And everything that I feared has come to pass. Every single thing. And Putin over there in Russia is laughing his butt off, watching us destroy each other over basic human rights. You know, we have a right. If you're going to cry to me about the Second Amendment and tell me they're coming to take our guns and blah, 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 then by the same token, the right to peaceful assembly, you must respect all the amendments. If you're going to respect one amendment, you need to respect all the amendments. And that is the thing at the end of the day. And sending people in to instigate the police or having the police react in such a strong manner and bringing in the military and the National Guard, all of that as a quote-unquote show of force is dictator-like. And we have all been afraid that he is, he's been marching towards dictatorship. And the weaker people of the other side who've been like Neville chamberling the crap out of this thing have frustrated the hell out of me because a stronger response from the beginning, regardless of political backlash, is how we should have been operating from the beginning. And now it's almost too late. And I don't know what the end result is going to be, to be honest with you. You see us all fighting in the streets. I don't know. The, the, I, I'm encouraged by the fact that protesters go back out every day. Every day, these young men and women, old men and women go out there to pro- protest. It's a young man's game. I wish I could go out there. I can't. I have too much to lose with my girlfriend and everything and I, what I've got here. I just don't have the strength to do it anymore. But in my 20s, I was out there protesting with a lot of people about things. Watching these young men and women go back out there to protest, I am encouraged by that. They're not afraid. They're emboldened. More people came to the White House the next day after they had tear gassed everybody uh, to, so that he could have his photo up. More protesters came out the next day. And that encourages me. That inspires me. That lets me know the American spirit is not dead. The American spirit is not uh, uh, hopeless. The American spirit is not feeling despondent. The American spirit is as strong, or strong as ever to fight, to defend our country and our way of life against someone who's looking to destroy it. And I know some of you listening to us, maybe Trump supporters, we've had some people come at us on Facebook about it, but this is our feeling, uh, our feeling about it. And you, as a rational human being, cannot see a president using military forces like the National Guard and threaten to use active duty military against its own citizens because of protests uh, is mind-blowing. And I know there's, there's looters and rioters, and I get that. Certainly the police can handle that. But the overall protests are not causing fights in the streets. you know. And that's what concerns me is this narrative is being twisted. And even today we had um, uh, Defense Secretary Mike Esper come out and say, there was no, we didn't tear gas those people when there's complete video of them tear gassing the protesters and then claim that there were buckets of sticks and bricks around the corners at these pieces, with, which no one has any evidence of, pictures of, video of. Uh, and when they come at the press, that's even more uh, scary because Trump has made an, I don't know, Trump has made a, a point of saying they are the enemy of the people because they cover Trump 
mostly 95% accurately about the crap he's doing. And Trump is mad that he's getting called out for the crimes that he's committing and his, and his family are committing in that office. And now we come back to this, and Steve, I'm sorry to keep going, but we come back to this idea of entertainment and how it connects to politics. So many great films have spoken truth to power. Do the Right Thing, certainly in 1989, was a powder keg of a film that exploded onto the scene because people were afraid to face the fact that this was happening. Police brutality was happening. Gangster rap in the early 90s spoke all about that on the West Coast and some on the East Coast, police brutality. Back once we were done with the Kangos and all that and, you know, doing the run DMC stuff and, and L, the early LL Cool J stuff, eventually we, we moved on to the harder rap and that was the gangster, what they call gangster rap. But that rap that spoke about police brutality spoke about how the police were biased towards African-Americans in their communities. And that has been a persistent drumbeat for decades now. And it finally exploded after the George Floyd situation. And so many people have voiced their displeasure across the world. There have been marches in the UK, in the Netherlands, in so many different countries in support of Black Lives Matter. My soccer team, Liverpool, when had their training and they all stood in the circle in the middle of the field of the soccer training and got down on one knee in support of the protests. That tells you how widespread this is. And this is why they fear the protests because it is so powerful what is happening here. So it must be met in their minds and in Trump and his administration minds with the equal amount of power. And to them, that is the military, the full possibly active duty military, regardless of what Mike Esper said today, it's what tr- it's Trump who decides when that active military is going to be used. So they, I think they fear this protest movement more than they feared anything before because they actually see behind the scenes, Republican donors running from Trump, Republican supporters running from Trump behind the scenes. And that scares him for his reelection, scares him because he might get exposed for all these crimes he might have committed in office uh, and all the favoritism that's been displayed. So I think that's 100% what's behind all of this. So that's a lot. And, 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 I, you know, I, and I think you, know, you and I are in the same place here. We've got a lot to say. We've got a lot of emotion about this. And here's the thing that I'm thinking about. And it, and it relates in a weird way to art and politics. Yep. Is that there is a portion of what our leaders are supposed to do, which is beyond policy. Yeah. It's beyond the nuts and bolts. So you might believe that taxes should be low, or you might believe that taxes should be high. You might believe in a woman's right to choose, or you might believe in the sanctity of life of a fetus. Yeah. You might believe that climate change is real or not real, or have different priorities about healthcare or not. But there are certain things. There are certain things that we expect our leaders to do. And in a way, it falls more into the category of art, yeah. which is we expect our leaders to lead. And, you know, you talk about Richard Nixon. Now, Richard Nixon is not on my list of favorite presidents, although he was an intelligent person. And there are things I can point to, like founding the EPA and the Clean Water Act, things like that, where I can go, man, I'm really glad Nixon did those things. Yeah. After Kent State, what did Richard Nixon do? He went to the Lincoln Memorial and spoke to young people. Yeah. Now, did Richard Nixon like the free speech movement and the hippie movement? No. He hated them. And if you listen to his tapes of what he said about those movements and the FBI investigations, he turned into various people who were part of those movements. <laughs> yeah. He hated them. And yet, at the moment that our nation was in crisis, he went and showed what it means to be a leader, yeah. even though he didn't agree with it. And this is where I go like, it's almost like I want to say, let's, in defense of lip service, 
There is a time when we need our leaders not to create policy, but in a way to create art, to create that moment of coming together, to create that moment to say we are a nation. And that was the moment that we needed a president, a leader. If he had come out and said, we will work together to solve these issues, we are one nation, then maybe things would have settled down. But instead, he did the opposite. And this is and this is the thing. I think that Donald Trump has a strange innate genius, unlike any other leader that I know of in history. And I read a lot of history. There's the expression that came out of Goebbels, I think, in Nazi uh, Germany, which was the idea of the big lie. And what the big lie is, is that if you say something that is not true, like Jews are of a great conspiracy to destroy the world, and you say it often enough and loud enough, people will begin to accept it as the truth. And I think what Donald Trump has done is to invent a new thing, which is the little upset, the little lie, mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of ones that are so bewildering and offensive and confusing that we actually can't focus on them. Because each time you try to talk about it, to investigate it, by the time you dig in, there's another one and another mm-hmm. one. And many of them are very small. You know, how big is his crowd at the inaug- inauguration? Right, right, right. Totally unimportant. It does it, It's a lie, but it doesn't really matter. And while we're focusing on that, there's another one. And then there's another one, you know, that right now, like literally 108,000 Americans, I believe right now have died from COVID-19. Yeah, but no one's and talking about it. We're not talking about it. Yeah. You know, like yeah, we're talking, you know, is that is that this is the thing. And and as soon as people are talking about him using uh police force to clear a park so he can have a photo op at a church that he's never visited with a Bible that he's never read. As soon as we start digging into that, there's going to be another one and another one. And this is the thing is that this is where I am not feeling that respectful right now. Most of the time I will respect other people's differences of opinion. But if you do not acknowledge that this man is a liar, well, I don't really have anything to talk to you about. If you don't acknowledge that he has destroyed norms within our country, norms that we all just accepted, everything from releasing your tax forms to to, to at least having a a show of cooperating with congressional investigations, to respect for various positions in the government, any of those things, if you don't acknowledge that he has destroyed those things and probably done permanent damage to our society because of it, you know, and, and it's like, you can hate Barack Obama. I'm cr- cr- critical of certain things. Sure. For instance, foreign Absolutely. policy, I, I'm not a, I think that he didn't handle it well. I agree. You know, I think there's lots of things to be critical above him, and you can disagree with him about policy. Yeah. But I don't think you can point to, you know, the guy's squeaky clean. Yep. You know, were there some small scandals in the course of his presidency? Yeah, small ones. Yeah. But there's no comparison. There's no comparison with Nixon, with Clinton, with name you, the name whatever president you hate the most. Yeah. There's no comparison with what is going on today in our society. Yeah. And you wonder, Steve, is, has this been a long time coming? Have we yeah. been waiting? I mean, like this, this doesn't happen overnight. This kind of anger, this kind of, from both sides, by the way, this kind of reaction, because I, you know, I watched some Fox News stuff and Greg Gutfeld, uh, he talking over Juan Williams, screaming his full head off, getting red-faced. It's all for show. It's just a show. And like a red-faced person, he's a clown. He's a clown. And that kind of stuff, they have to yell. 
Because if they don't yell, then the truth gets out. If they don't obfuscate it, the truth gets out. Actual logical, rational approaches to things get out. And they can't have that because that threatens their power or perceived power. And so when you watch someone go ape shit like that on TV, you just immediately go, nope, you don't believe a word you're saying. This is all desperate, insane banter to try to stop people from actually taking a moment to think. And I think there are, I believe in America. I believe in Americans. I believe once they're presented, fully presented with the picture, they'll make the right decision most of the time, if not all the time, but most of the time for sure. And we've seen this numerous numerous times. There were abolitionists during slavery times. There were people who fought back against the South and not the South necessarily as a block, but certainly against the idea of owning slaves, right? Yes, you can argue, well, was that the full intention of the North, blah, blah, blah. If you want to get to the minority, of my, sorry, the uh, minutia of it, feel free. But that was an overwhelming part of it. So we've always stepped out the civil rights movement, right? People, white people went down there and risked their lives to ride those buses and protests down in Southern states to get hit by hoses or attacked by dogs or get uh, racists to have thrown bricks at them or chase them down in cars and kill them, bury them, and then eventually get found out. That has happened throughout the course of history. There have been people who have been willing to be on the right side of history. How many, how many homosexuals as we walk into pride, how many members of the LGBTQ community have taken beatings and the bumps and have been killed uh, in efforts to raise awareness for their rights? Women as well, the, 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 you know, the suffragette movement and everything that happened from there and still fighting into the ERA, which we never did pass in the 70s, fighting for their rights, the Me Too movement. Eventually, we hit a breaking point and America does the right thing. We have been, and this may shock a lot of you who are listening who might be Trump supporters or conservatives, we have always been a progressive country. We just haven't been as progressive as quickly as some others might like, but we have always been a progressive country. And I believe that everything Trump is doing now will blow up in his face, not literally, obviously, figuratively, and Americans will go, that's too far. Once they see their brothers and sisters being shot in the streets, for simply protesting, that's too far. Once they see them getting beat up and bloodied and hurt and shoved down and stepped on, knees on, I saw knees on necks over the Me weekend too. again. Yeah. Once they see that in such massive force, the minority of people who support that won't be enough to stop the majority of people who want to not have that be the symbol of our country. And when other countries are looking at us and they're seeing the way we're treating our American citizens and they're saying, my God, I thought they were supposed to be the paragons of virtue. They were supposed to be the better country in this world as the leaders of the free world. It's a bad image for us to convey across the world. And I think eventually Americans will see that in mass. And if we get to vote in November, by the way, I'm, I'm in my head, I've started to doubt whether he's going to let us vote in November yep. with that mail-in ballot crap that he's pushed, that narrative the Republicans are pushing. But if they let us vote in November, I think he will get voted out. I think his entire party gets voted out. Uh, By the way, did you see today, and I, I'm, I, I, this is in the Washington Post, but I haven't confirmed yeah. it elsewhere, but that he registered to vote in Florida for his yep. absentee ballot, but didn't use his Florida address? I thought this was, I thought we were supposed to stop voter fraud with the mail-in ballot and the absentee ballot. Yeah, so, that is voter fraud. So, so I, I'm trying to think, I've been trying to figure out how to articulate something, mm. which is that if a whole bunch of people say the same thing over a long period of time, 
Yeah. It might not be true. It's possible it's not true. Right. But you should listen. So for hundreds of years, literally hundreds of years, African-Americans have said that they have been abused by the police, by law enforcement, by the government, by banks, by uh, uh, real estate agents, by housing associations, by all of these places. And if 15% of the American population says that this is real, I think you should take that seriously. Every African-American man I've spoken to and asked this question of, and I've asked a fair amount, have you ever been pulled aside, you know, driving, pulled over for driving while black? And every one of them has said yes, and not just once, but many, many times. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever been pulled over for no reason? Uh, No, I have never experienced that. But I have been in the car when my friend experienced that. Yeah. That was an eye-opening experience in my 20s. And my friend who I don't, how can I say this? I don't want to out his name, but my, my best friend in the world who is black, legitimately, he is black. He has been the city manager of a couple of cities. He has told me the number of times he's been pulled over while he's black. And he is like the city manager and he's been pulled over in those respective cities by the very same police he is city managing. Well, and that is, is insane. There was a, I was walking through Little Tokyo with my son, and we saw a beautiful yellow Corvette convertible and an African-American man, uh, and he's just pulled over to the side of the road. And my kid, who's very social and outgoing, talks to anybody he sees. And yeah. so he says, cool car, dude. And the guy looked over at us, and he was so upset. And he went, yeah. what? And then he went, Sorry, I'm really, really sorry. I just got pulled over because someone thought I stole this car. Wow. You know, and it's like, you know, the, that experience, just that experience alone yeah. is horrendous. And this is the thing, and, you know, and I've done some research about, there's sort of a decision tree of what, of how a police officer escalates in the field. Hmm. You know, at what point do you ask someone to get out of the car? At one point, do you use a stronger voice? At what point do you place your hand on your weapon? At what point do you put your hands on the person? At what point do you pull your weapon out? At what point do you use the taser or, or frisk someone or whatever it is? And that all it takes is that if you add 5% to your suspicion of a certain person based on the color of their skin, mm-hmm. then each one of those escalations happens sooner. Yeah. And that describes the experience of stop and frisk. It describes the experience of get out of the car. It describes the experience of the car getting searched. It describes the experience of being put on the ground and handcuffed and all these things that African-Americans have described as happening to them for literally hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And so, first of all, if you believe that these people are lying, and I've, I've spoken to a police officer who, when I've said the thing about, um, you know, who's a friend of mine, who, when I've said the thing about every African-American I know has, this has happened to him. He said, well, they did something. <laughs> See, and if you have that attitude, yeah, that attitude in and of itself to think of an entire group of people who right. for hundreds of years have repeatedly said the same thing and to assume that they must be lying, right. that is racism. And That's by the it. way. Yeah, and by the and that's a very well said, Steve. Absolutely, very well, powerfully said. And by the same, and by the and to be fair, there are black people who commit crimes. There are white people who commit crimes. There are Latino people who commit crimes. There are, 
but to completely focus on one race, and it seems to be consistently one race, that you implement this anger, this, this deathly interaction with, deathly interaction with, is incorrect. Just like if we were to say the entire police department is corrupt because four or five police officers have let their anger get the best of them in situations with black men. What we're saying is there's a systemic issue here, and that has been shown out in numerous pieces of media and film. Fruitvale Station is another one. There have been a number of movies that have addressed the issue of being black in this country from numerous filmmakers. And so you see it, and that is what's happening in this world. And so we're asking, and what I think what everyone is trying to say, or rational people are trying to say is, hey, let's just take a look at this. And let's make sure it stops. But what we're discovering now, Steve, is it's not a simple black and white issue, and and no pun intended. It's not a simple black and white issue. There is so much involved here now that I've discovered the last few days, the idea of funding the police, how that affects situations like this Mm -hmm. as well. The idea of who gets us, uh, the police don't live in the communities that they police in. That is a huge part of this as well. There is so much that systematically needs to be changed, starting with some of the police unions Having yeah, to change how they approach what I was this, say. Is, right? So all of that, this is a very complex issue, and it has to be addressed and dismantled and then built back up again so that everyone feels safe with the police. We, I had uh, uh, Jared Habon on, who you know from the Bachelor and stuff. Jared has been a frequent guest on my sports shows. First time he was on my sports show this past Monday with there with Jay Washington and Winston Marshall, and he said, "I have never been afraid of the police. Right. Whenever the police show up." I always feel safe. And that is something that probably 95%, well, I don't want to give quotes, but I mean, probably a majority, if not almost the entire black race has never felt that way in mass in right. this country. Well, and, and here's the thing, and I'll, I'll say two different things. Mm. The first is, is that when there is uh, a murder in the African-American community or violence or crime, yeah. the African-American community condemns it. Yeah. This is terrible. How can this, you know, immediately condemns it. When there is an action by a police officer, the police tend to, not all of them, but tend to rally around and justify it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that is one of the key differences. And, and here's, here's another thing I'll say. Again, I believe that if you think that all of these African-Americans are lying, that is a sign of your prejudice against that race. Yeah. But let's, let's just say for argument's sake, and, I, and of course I don't believe this, let's just say that it's not true. If you were Apple Computers, or if you were General Motors, and there was 15% of the population that said you had been racist towards them and were mistreating them, and you went, that's not true, we have no evidence of this, it's not true, not true at all, you would still do everything in your power to change your image among that community. Yeah. Is that just the fact that so many people with so many interactions with the police are frightened, are terrified, is a sign that the police are doing something wrong. Is that they're, because the more frightened people are of the police, the less likely they are to cooperate with the police. Yes. The less good citizens they become, the more distrustful the, they become, the worse witnesses they become. The, and, and it's bad for society on every single level. And even if it weren't true, which it is true, even if it weren't, it would be incumbent upon the police department to resolve this situation. Yeah. 
That is what has to, and, and you, we see there are communities that have uh, police departments that practice de-escalation, that practice yes. interaction with communities, and yes. things get better. Does it solve the problems? No. We got a long way to go to solve the, we're not going to solve these problems. Mm. But we can work towards solutions. We can improve things. And I'm not saying that the police should just let, you know, let criminals go. Of course not. I am saying that when someone is on their knees or with their hands handcuffed behind their back, they shouldn't shoot pepper spray into their face. Yeah. You know, that is not necessary. Yeah. And, you know, walking away, uh, admitting you're wrong, walking away and reevaluating your approach to something is an American thing to do. It's a human thing to do. Throughout our history, we have made mistakes, taken a step back, and adjusted and changed for the better as a country. And that's what I think gets lost here. You have a commander-in-chief who refuses to admit that he's wrong about anything. Ever. 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 He's like a basketball player that has never, in his mind, committed a foul in his entire life. Yeah. And it's super frustrating to watch happen because it sends a very terrible message and encourages others to also not admit that they're wrong. To think that is an actual sign of strength when it is a blatant sign of weakness. You have been wrong. All of you listening to us have had an altercation with somebody, family or friend or stranger, where you realized, shit, I shouldn't have said that, or shit, that was wrong, I shouldn't have done that, and you've gone and apologized. Yep. Are you a terrible person for doing that? That's the, or are you a better person? And that's all I think these protests are about. Please stop killing us. Please take a look at this and what's happening here, and please change this. And having that O'Brien idiot come out on Sunday and say there is no systemic racism sets everything back because he's placating the police unions and the people he thinks that are going to vote for Trump. And that's the frustrating part of it is because I think we're a better country when we make, when we realize the mistake and make the change, not when we just obstinately push our opinions through and believe we're hundred percent right. No matter what anybody says, that is not actually the American point of view. That's a dictator point of view. The American point of view, which is what our founding fathers wanted and set up, is debate to reach a conclusion, debate to reach a, legisl- a bill, uh, agreement on a legislation. It is debate within the House of Representatives, the Senate, and then eventually the president himself debating possibly with people there in the Senate or in the House. That is what is set up by our founding fathers. So don't crow to me about the founding fathers when you advocate a dictatorship. That is everything the founding fathers were against. They were about communication, about conversation. Yeah, you can throw up, oh, they held slaves. Fine. But the basic point of view, their approach to government, because they left a dictatorship in England at the time, was to have conversation and debate, not a dictatorship that is ruled by one point of view only. And that's what we're seeing now as so many Republicans stay quiet about what Trump did by gassing those protesters out of there so that he could take his photo up. I mean, you could just watch, uh, I think it was Casey, I forget her name there on NBC, maybe it's Casey Hunt. She has video of her inter- trying to ask every single Republican senator who was walking into it. a meeting, yeah, about what they thought about what Trump did. And to the person, they either A, said they were a little bit disturbed by it, or B, said they didn't see it, didn't, didn't have time it. to see it. Or Romney and all his gall for so supposedly being against Trump said, I was having lunch and have time to watch it. Get the hell out of here. If it mattered to you, you would have made time to watch it. Don't give me that. Even if you're sitting in the shitter, taking a dump, 
you could have pulled it up on your phone and watched it. So there are ways to watch so that all of that is just uh, political cover for what they see happening here. And maybe some of them behind the scenes are kind of really talking to people in the administration to make this change. We've heard differing points of views come out of here. So we'll see, man. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't feel as hopeless as I felt yesterday, but that could be temporary. And tomorrow I could feel just as hopeless again as I felt yesterday. We'll see. And I don't know, you know, obviously Steve, I don't know where you're at, but I, or it seems like you're in that place as well. The feeling of like, I don't know what to do here and I'm angry. Yep. Uh, three things that I know that this quote unquote intro is now, is now longer <laughs> we did than say the, it was a medium, not a short. <laughs> yeah. We've gone beyond medium, but here, here are three things the, 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 the first thing I would say is that in every sport and you're much more the sports guys than, than mm. me, there are people, there, there's always going to be a little pushing of the rules. So there's going to be oh, a little sure. bit of holding on the lines. So it's gonna, right, you're going to get physical in the paint, whatever it is. That's, and that's part of the game. Yes, episodes, games of shit. Yes. That's what happens. And and yes, sometimes the ref calls it and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes there's a guy who really pushes that envelope really far. And sometimes there's a guy who plays much more in the in the rules. But if someone walked out onto the basketball court with a baseball bat and started hitting people with it, yeah. they have ruined the game. Right. There's a certain point at which the you're no longer pushing the rules, you're breaking the game. And the thing about Donald Trump, and this is the this is I think the most important thing about his character is that all he cares about is Donald Trump and what people think of Donald Trump. So he literally said, there's too many tests because the more tests you get, the more cases you get. And that makes him look bad. All he cares about is making himself look good. He doesn't care about actually being good. So he wants to lie about how tall his building is. So people will believe he has the tallest building in New York. He doesn't care if he actually has the tallest building in New York. He just wants people to believe that. And when you have someone like that, it becomes extremely difficult to deal with them because their priorities are entirely different. And the weak, feckless nature of the Republican Party to not stand up to this guy over and over again. Like we said when he got elected or even before, like this is going to be real trouble. But there was always the belief, well, you know, there's the institutions will keep him in check. There's the Congress will keep him in check. People, and what we have seen over and over again is that is not the case. You know, during the impeachment, Susan Collins said he learned his lesson. Trump will never learn a lesson. This is it for him. This is what he will be, and he will continue to do these things, and his narcissism, his incompetence, his uh, insanity, his nastiness, his all of these things will continue to drag our country down and down and down until someone makes him go away. And yeah. I'm, person who believes, yeah, out, yeah. I, I pers- I'm a person who believes in reaching across the aisle. I believe in finding ways to make deals with people who don't agree with you. But at this moment, I think the entire Republican Senate needs to be voted out. That's what I think. Strong statement. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm just going to add one thing. And as I, I don't a hundred percent go along with you, but I do think if they don't step up, um, it's difficult to reach across the aisle. If you can't even agree on the basic fundamental definition of human rights Yeah. And for all American citizens. And not that uh, ridiculousness that Mitch McConnell delivered yesterday. Really believe in the rights of all American citizens and not using them as political props. And this is important. You know, the, uh, Today, Trump tweeted out about that uh, 77-year-old gentleman who was killed by the looters or the rioters or whoever it was uh, defending a uh, pawn shop 
from being uh, looted. He was shot in the head and killed, unfortunately. That's the only tweet he put out. He didn't put any tweet out about George Floyd. No picture of George Floyd, rather. He put out a picture of this gentleman because it fits his political benefit. There's no real humanity behind it. It's about fitting his political benefit because he's a, because the gentleman was a former police officer. He's once again playing to his base, playing to the police officer base. That is unfortunate because then he's also committing racism all over again by using this uh, this gentleman, this black man, for his own political benefits, his naked political benefit, instead of the actual truth, which is that this gentleman was an unfortunate casualty of this escalating war between both sides. That he uh, is absolutely. Uh, partly to uh, absolutely to blame for not fully, but certainly part of it and most of it to blame for in my opinion. One of the things I admired president Obama the most about, and I think this worked to his detriment for most of his uh, career as president Mm, mm. is that he liked complexity. He liked to look at both sides. So his, you know, the the Reverend Wright speech in 2008 when he was running for president about racism, and he said that his grandmother, who he loved, used the N-word, you know, is that he didn't just say these are bad people and these are good people. He kind of said, you know, to quote Avenue Q, everybody's a little bit racist, you know, and that this is complicated and it's generational. And he presented a complicated thing. When there was the shooting of police in Dallas and he made the speech, he said things about the service of police officers yeah. and the bravery and the courage and the respect he has for police officers and the tragedy that they, yeah. that innocent police officers were assassinated. Yeah. But he also spoke about being a young black man and that he had his own feelings and that he felt like Trayvon Martin or whoever it was, right. you know, and that, and that he presented something in complexity. And if you watched his speech on Fox news, they only showed one half of it. Yep. Is they just showed the side where he talked about uh, young African-American men being killed and not the side where he talked about cops. Right. Trump has no such issues. <laughs> Trump is going to say whatever he wants to get people angry and on his side. Right. And this is complicated. The looting is horrible. Yep. People dying because of this is horrible. Yes. And, and we need to approach this of, with some complexity. And, and, and maybe this is, you know, I, I think we, we talked a long time mm. and, and maybe this is a way to sort of segue into the original question is that what we present to the world, the stories we tell about ourselves, even ones that aren't 100 percent true, yeah. are important. You know, was John F. Kennedy the person that he uh, claimed to be in his speeches? Not exactly. Yeah. But his speeches were important. You know, is that the, the, the image we present of America to the world is important. And right now, that image is in bad, bad shape. And maybe we need some artists. We need, the, we need the next Frank Capra. We need those people to articulate a vision of America in the 21st century that can move forward and make something better than what we have right now. And every single Hollywood studio, and of course, maybe they're listening, maybe they're not. Maybe you guys have forwarded this on to them. Every single film and TV studio needs to make a concerted effort to hear from those creators who are trying to create films about this, TV shows about this. Not to inflame tensions, but to explain, to bridge the divide, to show, to display, to explore and to educate, and eventually to evolve the viewer that's watching it into a different 
mindset and frame of mind that is more, uh, I guess I can only say is more evolved in the yeah. end. Yeah. A hundred percent agree. And that was, I love how you said that. That's, and I, and I think that's a good place to now segue to a week and a half ago when John and I were a lot less angry yeah, and discussing this question from our great supporter on Patreon about art and politics. Hello and welcome to another edition of Cinephile Shorts. This is our time where we get to answer your questions. And we got a question from Ryan Lieb that both John and I read and said, oh, we got to do that. And not only do you say we got to do that, but like this might be a, this might not, this might be a medium, not a short. It might even move into a long because this is a fascinating question that Ryan asked. It's a long email, but I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, He says, is art inherently political? It's a bit of an ambiguous and loaded question and something I frequently disagree with my friends about. Many people tell me that art does not exist in a vacuum, and therefore artists have a responsibility to tailor their art to the current social and political climate. But I personally believe that art is at is best when it is allowed to act to some degree as if it is in a vacuum, even to obviously, even though obviously it is not. For example, is it wrong to cast a cisgender actor as a trans character because trans people are at a disadvantage in our current society? Is it wrong to use certain words in your scripts that people today are particularly sensitive to? Is it wrong to give character stereotypical traits because it benefits the story you're trying to tell? On the flip side, is it right to say artists can or cannot or should or should not do specific things with their art because of the political implications? And lastly, does art animate life or does life animate art? Should artists bear responsibility for how their art impacts society or do you think their potential for destructive social impact is often exaggerated? This is a subject I think a lot about and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Wow. Yeah, Ryan, man, that's a, there's a lot there. And... (laughs) Um, I, 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 I'm trying to think of what the best way to approach this is, um, because section by section, maybe I, 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 I think here, here's, here's where I would like to start. Okay. This is my philosophy mm-hmm. is that I believe, and I won't talk about all art. I'm not going to talk about painting or dance or things like that, but, but they talk about just art that has to do with storytelling. I believe the first job is to entertain. That is primary. And by entertain, I mean that my job is to get you to want to be listening to this podcast, watching this film, reading this book, reading this comic book, and want to turn the page, and that you enjoy the experience. And sometimes a joy can mean you're bursting into tears, but it means you're having an emotional experience that you want to continue. If I fail to do that, then I have not, then I failed entirely. And, and anything, politics, philosophy, all of that is secondary to me keeping your intention in a way that you like. And, and, and that I think that the main way in storytelling that we do that is by exploring to some degree the human condition. And that might be through comedy. It might be through the things we're most frightened of. It could be through, you know, thrilling action sequences or something. We're exploring some aspect of humanity. And so sometimes exploring that aspect of humanity has to brush up against what we might call politics. But I don't think politics is ever the, is necessarily the primary. The primary is you got to want to listen to my story. Yeah, well, to me, Ryan's questions, questions, I would say throughout this whole thing are uh, seeking generalizations. And I can't give you generalizations, Ryan, because generalizations do not exist in my world when it comes to art. I think everything is a case by case basis. You can't say, 
I will always separate the art from the artist, or I will always separate, or I will not separate the art from the artist. You can't say, why is this? It should be a, the best person for the part. Why? Because the equality of casting, the equality of uh, people who've been able to play these parts in the past has not been level. If it had been level, then absolutely you cast the best person for the part. But I like the fact that we're becoming more aware of these kinds of situations and that the fandom is becoming more aware of it. We recently just had Batwoman, uh, Ruby Rose. She stepped away from the role. Of course, there were problems on both sides. I think WB wanted her to step away from the role and she wanted to step away from the role. But she was a lesbian actress who was cast to play a character who isn't a member of the LGBTQ community. And now they want to replace her with another member of the LGBTQ LGBTQ community. And I think that's correct. I think that's right. If there were 40 gay superheroes, then you wouldn't need to do that. But because there isn't, and this is an important one, I think it is okay to be aware of it, you know, to be, uh, to be respectful of that. As far as using certain words or using certain, uh, you know, uh, storylines in your uh, film, that is up to you as the artist. And then the people who are going to patronize your art will let you know if they liked it or not. And if nobody comes to see it, guess what? They didn't like it. They didn't like that you put those words in. And they didn't like that you chose that storyline. They didn't like it that you did what you did with the script and that you defaulted using stereotypical paths to uh, to get an ultimate to get a result down the road in your film they saw your stereotypes coming didn't invest in your characters and then didn't like the end so to me it's always a case-by-case basis you can get away with stereotypes if you've built your construct really uh, 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 strongly i just i'm in the middle of the fourth season of house of cards and there have been some a couple of stereotypical characters that frustrated the piss out of me because every other character has so much depth and complexity and layers, but they're being put in to advance the storyline. But I don't mind it overall because the overall effect of it still works for me. So it's all a case by case basis and how you've constructed your art to work. I don't think art works in a vacuum, but I think you can appreciate art in a vacuum, right? You can absolutely watch it if you want to watch uh, In the Heat of the Night and you see a good crime thriller. That's all you see. And that's all you see. That's totally fine for you if you want to do that. However, if you want to ignore what's actually happening, what's really what this film is really about, which is about racism in the South and how it's still, uh, you know, there's still racist to people, to black people, no matter how much, no matter how accomplished they are. That is your choice to ignore that storyline. But another, another person can come by and say, I see that storyline and I love that film for that reason. Uh, and that's how you approach it. Now, if you have people telling you that you need to appreciate a certain way, then I don't think that those people are incorrect. You are allowed to experience art as you see fit and they are allowed to experience art as they see fit. But uh, again, I don't, th- I don't think most great artists create art uh, in a vacuum. They create it to say something to you as the viewer or the observer or the consumer. Uh, they want to have an effect on you with the art that they're creating here. I have so many thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm trying to think of where to start. And I think where, where I, my bias to some degree, I think comes from the fact that I was born in the 60s. Yeah. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the land of hippies yes. and the, and the origins of the free speech movement. Both my parents went to Berkeley in the early sixties, the real time of the free speech movement. They're pre hippie. And then I went to Berkeley in the eighties and graduated in 91. And yeah. the, the free speech movement in particular is really, really powerful to me. It's really important. And the world that I was brought up in was a world that was 
responding against the restrictive nature of the past. Yes. Saying, we need to talk about these things, whether it was Lenny Bruce uh, and his comedy, whether it was Sam Shepard and his plays, whether it was the entire movement of the 70s cinema, um, uh, the hippie movement, you know, and people saying, you can't tell me how to dress. You can't tell me how to speak. We should talk about our sexuality. We should talk about, you know, the things inside of us, the gray areas that are difficult and painful. You know, you listen to some of George Carlin's comedy or you listen to Richard Pryor and say, like, we're not going to, we're going to talk about things that are uncomfortable. Yeah, And what's so interesting to me is that that was a, a, a movement really created uh, by the left, mm-hmm. the liberals. Yes. And today it is the left that is more restrictive in saying what you cannot say, you know, that, that you shouldn't say this language or have these kinds of characters or use right. these kinds of things, you know, this. And, and so while I'm a lefty, everyone who, you know, knows me and is listening to this podcast, know I have a liberal worldview that, yeah free speech part of my brain. Like I remember there was um, Milo Yiannopoulos, mm-hmm. who is yeah. the very right wing, very um, uh, likes a lot of controversy guy. Yes. And he had a, a, a date to speak at Berkeley. Right. And there was huge protests against him. And finally they said, don't come. We've canceled your speaking engagement. Uh, because he was, you know, he's a radical right wing guy who I hate all the stuff that he talks homophobic and, you know, it's just horrible stuff, in my opinion. Um, and there was the Daily Cal is the newspaper, the UC Berkeley newspaper. Mm-hmm. And in the Daily Cal, shortly after that, five people who were the leaders of the free speech movement in the early 60s said, you have betrayed us. We don't like what Milo has to say either, but the whole point of the free speech movement is that people get to speak. And the thing is, is that, and this is where I kind of, I, I, have, I, I have very complicated feelings about all this, is that, in my opinion, popular speech doesn't need protection. Nobody needs protection to say puppy dogs are cute because nobody's <laughs> shutting down the fact that puppies and do- dogs are cute. How the dare o- you? Yeah, the right, only yeah. speech that needs protection is unpopular <laughs> speech. Yeah. So Lenny Bruce attacking the Catholic Church in the early 60s, that needs protection right. because the, the powerful world is saying you can't talk about that. Mm-hmm. And so wh- where I, I believe that some of the best films of all time are films that are challenging. You know, like yeah. you think, like one of your favorites, not one of my favorites, one of your favorites is French Connection. Yeah. And that Popeye Doyle is a racist, horrible, drunken asshole. Yeah, pretty much. You know, Archie Bunker is a racist, horrible asshole. Right, right. And yet, particularly all in the family, but a lot of the, the cinema and television of the 70s goes, let's look at that. Let's explore it. And we're going to say some words that are going to make you uncomfortable and get into some ideas that are going to make you uncomfortable. And maybe it's going to make you laugh and it's going to make you think about things. So uh, the idea of, I don't want anything to be off limits. I want artists, like think about South Park. South Park is a great example of a show where nothing is off limits. And do they do, do I like everything South Park does? No. Some of the stuff I was like, man, that was too far. But But I'm glad that that exists. Right, right. But would you like a show, Steve? And and let's, I mean, uh, this is interesting because we're having this discussion. Would you like a show that was a Nazi-driven show about them uh, executing Jewish people in the Holocaust that was from the Nazi point of view and celebrated the Nazi point of view? Would you want that on a television screen? No. Yeah. But would you stop it from happening? Well, would you so, try if you could? 
Let me let me let me stall on that question for okay. a moment right. by, by saying so one of the big questions, and I think it was like 1980, mm-hmm. was when the neo-Nazis were going to march in Skokie, Illinois. Yes. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Skokie had a huge Jewish population, a lot of Holocaust survivors there. Right. And so naturally, the neo-Nazis said, let's march there because it is the most controversial, you know, like we want to stir up trouble. We, of course, yep. we've seen the same thing recently. Yes. Is, and, and this was a discussion around the Morris family dinner table when I was a kid. Well, what do we do? And really the, the response from my family at that time was you got to let them march. Yeah. Our value and you protest them and you say it's wrong and you say this is horrible and you stand and you have a much bigger counter protest than their march and you march and you march and you speak. But if we say you can't march, then we violate these rules of freedom of speech, basically principles of our country. So now that I've stalled a little bit, um, I'm going to go back to my first rule is that, is it possible that there is a a profound, entertaining show about the human condition from the Nazi perspective. Maybe I actually think, I think it is. But a show that celebrates the murder of Jews, I can't imagine, and I I think we, first of all, who the fuck is going to let that on the air? Who the hell wants to see it? And I think we, if someone said, I want to make this, then we protest it, and we don't watch it, and we say, no, that is not acceptable. You know, but, but again, I, who am I to say, that there isn't some way, like if you like, I think there is a story you could tell about a, a soldier in the German army in World War II who is heroic or who is mm-hmm. brave or sympathetic, even though he's fighting for the side of the enemy. I think that is possible, and that might be a profound story. Right, but that's from your point of view, and what maybe majority of people would want to see. Right, but if there is a shift in, t- and we're seeing this now. The white supremacy, the Nazi stuff, that is starting to become a prevalent thing in our country, yeah. being being courted by a certain side of the political spectrum. Uh, and you go, okay, well, what if those people start to own TV stations, start to own broadcasting arms, and they want to show a show where you get to know these Nazi guards and you actually that you give them lives, you give them complexity, you give them storylines and things of that nature, but they're still going out and committing some horrible things. I know I just mentioned House of Cards. Frank Underwood is a very terrible person, but it is played by a charming guy like Kevin Spacey, at least at the time. I know people have turned on him and I respect that. But at the well, time he still point, might be charming. Yeah, fair, fair. But that's my point, right? But if there is a market for it in a free market economy, and there just might be with the advent of Nazism, the advent of, or the return rather of Nazism and white supremacy, there just might be a market for that. Then as a supply and demand capitalist market in the media, there is a possibility that a show could exist like that. And at that point, um, do your principles still hold true that you defend its right to exist and be on the air? It's a really hard question, and yeah, and and, yeah, and, and, no. I, and I and and I don't want to I don't want to shy away from it. I I, you know, to be in the position of defending the rights of Nazis is is a is a real rough one, as right. particularly as a Jewish guy, right? Um, Which is and why so yeah. you know I there is nothing in my life that is pro Nazi. Let's be real, real clear about this. <laughs> yes, very. My the so there's a uh, do you know Chris Hedges? sort of a political philosopher, former Jesuit, writes these very, very heavy books. Okay. Um, I've read several of them. They're extremely depressing. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's one book, I think it's called American Fascists, Mm -hmm. and it deals with the extreme right. And the thing he says, and and I think that I am a 
what this this conversation is pointing out that I am a perfect example of this thing that he says hmm. is that he says that the liberal progressive point of view that tolerance is a pillar of that hmm. that you get to live your life your way and I get to live my life my way and that we should even tolerate people that have views which we think are somewhat crazy right. and part of the reason for that is just what I said popular speech doesn't need protecting and uh, tolerance isn't about tolerating things you agree with it's about tolerating things you really really don't like yeah and what he says is the fallacy of that is that uh, and this is really to your point the fallacy of that is that when you're being tolerant to people who are incredibly intolerant they take advantage of your tolerant to yes. push their cause forward yes. and the quote from him that is really powerful is there is a certain point at which you must not tolerate intolerance yep. and and that's a very difficult point for me and 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 i think you in your question have brought up exactly where that point is yeah cuz i i struggle with it all the time oh sorry Steve, go ahead yeah sorry well well and that is that I, my basic fundamental belief is that sunlight is the best disinfectant and that if someone is going to come at me with a Nazi argument, that I should be able to beat them in a fair fight because my argument is better because I'm right and they are wrong. And their argument is flawed, disgusting, vile, anti-human, and ultimately self-destructive. And therefore, I want the argument. I'm like, bring it on because I can take you down. However, history shows that I'm not right. Yeah. That there are times when those arguments have won, whether it's in Nazi Germany or in Pol Pot's Cambodia mm -hmm. or in, you know, name your favorite horrible fucking massacre yeah. is that somebody, the, the, even though the, the arguments that they were living by were ridiculous, like look yeah. at Mao's, you know, cultural revolution and like, look, you know, the Great Leap Forward and all the where millions of people died yeah. because of idiocy. Well, that proves that I'm wrong. You know, and so to, to, to what you are saying, yes, there is a point where, no, you don't get to put your fucking Nazi show on the air. <laughs> Absolutely not. But, but there's also a point where it's like, no, you do have to let, you know, like one of the things he says is, should we let people use bad language that is offensive to people? Right. right. Now this is, I, and we can all assume we can take guesses of what language he's talking about and what words, and these are words that are not in my vocabulary right. that I, that I wouldn't use. And yet, you know, Shakespeare says the, you know, the job is to put the mirror up to nature. People use those words. And by not portraying reality, we actually, I think, give it more strength. I think the way to take it down sometimes is to go right at it and show it, not avoid it. Well, and I think that's why people have such a hard time with Tarantino stuff, right? The, the uh, conversations and the confusion lies in the exploration of this his ability to use the n-word to give his characters their just a free reign to use the n-word you have people like spike lee who absolutely hate the fact that tarantino is doing this and are mad that a white man is giving characters in his story who are liked by the audience uh whether they're criminals or not there's a charm to them uh they're liked by the audience and they say those words and that and tarantino's defense is of course he's showing the realism the realist realistic dialogue that occurs between low lower level criminals in his movies and the uh, casualness with which they speak racist terms. Uh, and you've got the other side where, and Andy puts Sam Jackson in his movies and Sam Jackson, who's been in a number of Spike Lee movies, yeah. defends Tarantino's usage of the N word in those movies. So it becomes in the end, a, a, a thing you can't actually make a solid decision about other than personally for yourself. You cannot make an objective decision about this kind of thing 
because there are people on both sides of the, of the spectrum about it who you would turn to uh, as the, uh, in essence, the gatekeepers of the ability to use it or not use it uh, in situations like this. So, yeah, I mean, that's the thing that's I find to be always uh, complex about uh, all of that and what he asks uh, here, does, uh, does art imitate life or does life imitate art? It's uh, does, should artists bear responsibility for how their art impacts society? Or do you think their potential for destructive social impact is often, uh, exaggerated or isn't often exaggerated? Once again, it's, it's a matter of, of taste and it's a matter of, are they checking a box or are they influencing uh, people to feel a certain way? Like I just saw that Waco documentary on Netflix uh, I'm not, not documentary, sorry, the Waco show with Taylor Kitsch uh, and Melissa Benoist. Fantastic show. But I also think they uh, uh, gave the Waco people a little too much understanding and the, and the government not the equal amount of understanding. And that frustrated me personally as a military guy, but also as a guy who knows how cults can uh, hurt people and can destroy people's uh, self-esteem and mess them up uh, of how they view relationships. And the fact that this guy was sleeping with 13-year-old girls, 12-year-old girls, a number of these ladies who were in the Waco compound have given interviews and spoken about it. Yet there's not one sequence other than uh, with a 15-year-old where we see Taylor Kitsch's, uh, whatever his name was, Koresh, sleep, David Koresh, sleeping with a 12-year-old or 13-year-old girl. And in my opinion, if you want to show the fairness, if you want to like defend them a little bit, show him sleeping with a 12-year-old girl or show him taking a 13-year-old girl into his bedroom. I don't mean show them actually doing the act, but I mean take him so you get the idea that this guy is, was in essence a sexual monster who tried to hide himself behind these religious ideas uh, and people went along with it. So therefore, you've got the government who is at times, uh, you know, was a little too gung-ho and stupid and careless with what they did. The ATF, they were a little too careless. And some of the FBI members uh, by the same, and, and then you balance that out by showing the fact that Koresh was a despicable human being as well. I thought they, they were a little too lenient to Koresh, in my opinion, overall. And that could influence people to hate the government to give them like even more ammunition. See this story. See, they hate the government. They have a right to hate the government, suspect the government, blah, blah, blah. So there is a sense of responsibility there that the filmmakers or the creators, I think, need to bear to present a balanced uh, portrayal and let the audience make up their own mind, not steer the audience towards one way or another. So as, as happens many times, you said so many interesting things that I'm kind of cataloging, like, oh, I want to respond to that. I want to respond to that. And I made the decision as you started talking about Waco that I went, okay, I'm not going to get into Waco. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I was, everything you said was really interesting. I'm not going to get into it. And then you said one thing that I was like, oh, no, I have to, I have to get into Waco, too, which is that, is that the issue of showing the guy sleeping with a 13-year-old girl goes exactly into what we're talking about because there's some people that would say you should never put that in a movie because we don't want people to think that that's okay. Or there might be some, you know, person out there who gets ideas out of that and then that's really bad. And so that falls into exactly this category. Do we hold the mirror up to the horrible thing in order to expose it? Or do we, uh, you know, and this is, you know, I call this movies that model good behavior, Mm -hmm. like Captain America. It's like, that's who we want to be. Right. You know, and there are other movies that expose bad behavior. Yeah. And and then there's another area, too, which is the exposing gray behavior, yeah. you know, because people just aren't perfect. You know, yeah, true. there are people that in a moment of anger or in, they say something insensitive or sexist or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's and they said that, you know, I mean, you have, I'm sure, moments that you regret. I have moments that I regret, uh, yeah. you know. 
and, and so it's like trying to portray humans as like we always do everything right does a real disservice to art. Um, I want to just comment quickly on Quentin Tarantino because I think there's a yeah. good, th- good way to separate this. Is that, y- is that you can separate whether or not the artist has the right to do something mm-hmm. and whether or not you like it. Sure. I, I, I believe Quentin Tarantino, who is a genius, a brilliant person, mm-hmm. has, the right, has earned the right to do his art the way he wants to do it. Sure. I don't like it either. I'm with Spike <laughs> Lee. I think that because, and it's just funny, in another short that we did, we talked about the idea of violence being titillating or pornographic. Right. I don't think Quentin Tarantino, maybe in Reservoir Dogs he was, but I don't think Quentin Tarantino in any of his recent films is, is doing it for the realistic, you know, underbelly of the way the criminal classes talk. Yeah. I think he thinks it's fun. You know? Yes. You yeah. know, and, and Quentin Tarantino dialogue in and of itself is thrilling, you know? Because it's so beautiful. And putting that word in with his beautiful dialogue, I do have a problem with. Right. And, and this goes, again, to Ryan's question, is do artists have a responsibility for what effects their stuff might have? I think yeah. 100% yes. And I think there are people who watch Quentin Tarantino movies, and they're thrilling and exciting, and they want to emulate it, who will start using the N-word yeah. because Quentin Tarantino does. And I think he has to hold responsibility for that. I, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Absolutely. Vigo Mortensen, I think, uh, recently, about a year or two ago, when he was uh, doing the tour for Green Book, press for Green Book, used the N-word right in front of Marsha Ali in a casual way. Uh, And it got him a lot of flack in that moment. Well, today we have the phrase, the N-word. Yeah, we do. (laughs) You should know not to use it. At the time I did it. Yeah. I don't disagree with you. Absolutely. I think so too. I think that's, that's, I I don't even, I don't even rap that word in lyrics of songs that I thoroughly enjoy from the rap genre of music. I don't even in my car rap that word. Uh, So for me, when I see people rap that word, like Justin Bieber, like other people I've seen before, and maybe a couple of friends of ours, I've seen rap that word at times, I get real iffy about it. It bothers me because I think there's a casualness that you use that word. Uh, I, sorry. I think there's a casualness that some people uh, in a way that some people use that word that don't understand the historical significance and implications of that word. Uh, and I think that has to be respected and I don't like it. I don't tolerate that. Uh, and it frustrates me when I see it happening because people are so casual about it, but um, it's not that long ago. It really isn't. And we see shades of it returning again with a lot of stuff happening over the last couple of years now, uh, emboldened from the uh, top down in our country. And that's, that's scary. And that's a shame, you know, because I, I, we, we hoped we had progressed and we feel like we haven't now. And uh, that's unfortunate, but you know, we'll see, we'll see with, uh, I I guess I I just want to say one last thing here before we wrap up is that like, I think art uh, is, I think it's okay for art to be political and it frustrates me when people go, Oh, I just want to enjoy the film as it is. Well, it's not for you to do that. It's for you to enjoy it as you will, but you can't stop other people from analyzing the film and wanting to enjoy the film and appreciate the, the social implications, the political implications, the historical implications within their film or their TV show. You have a right to savor it as you wish. But you cannot complain that other people are are looking at it and finding these things that the director or the author or the uh, uh, executive producer or even the actor in, and writer intended to put into that piece of media or piece of art. 
if it's there and they uh, support it, then they have every right to look at it through a political landscape. If you don't want to see it through a political landscape, that's up to you to let that go. It's not up to other people to stop talking about it in a political way for you to be able to consume it. That's not correct. Everyone is allowed to consume art as they see fit. In my opinion, you're not allowed to tell other people how they can consume art or how they should consume art. Uh, so I, I, I have several thoughts, as always. Um, the, the first is, is that the most powerful thing you have as an audience member is your ability to not go to that movie. Yes. And, and your ability to go to the movie and say, that wasn't my taste. I did not like that. And you Absolutely. talk about why you didn't like it. That's totally fine. Whether, like, in my mind, and this is what I said at the very beginning, our job as artists is to explore the human condition. And, yeah. and in exploring that, that might make it funny, and it might make it scary, and it might make it moving or whatever. And, and the most interesting stories are stories that have drama to them. Yes. They have conflict. And the, and the most interesting stories are stories that look at things in a new way. And so sometimes what we're looking at in a new way, let's say we're exploring the world of food and you make a movie like Big Night, mm -hmm. you know, is that movie political? Well, it deals with immigration and stuff like that, but that's yeah. not the main thing about that movie. Right, it's right, about right. the love of food. But there are a lot of issues. If you're dealing with someone who's poor, if you're dealing with someone who, you know, as, as Ryan asks, is someone who is, you know, transgender or something and telling their story, well, their story is going to be inherently political. Because the position that they're in is, is, is related to their position in society. Yeah. And so you cannot tell that story without to some degree being political. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that throughout history, particularly with comedy, by the way, yeah. art has been one of the main things that drives the moral story of the universe forward. It drives history. The most important example is probably Uncle Tom's Cabin, the most popular book for almost a century. Yeah, and yeah. this book is, if you look at the pillars of what started the abolition movement, this is one of them. Yeah. You know, this is one of the Frederick Douglass, of course, um, uh, John Brown, of course, but mm -hmm. Uncle Tom, Harry Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah. That is art that changed history. We talked about uh, Grapes of Wrath on this podcast. We talked about, uh, you know, there's the, the book, The Jungle. Yeah. You know, there's, there's moments in history where a piece of art forces us to look at something in a different way. Yep. Does that mean I think that the job of the artist is to be political? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. But but that is one of the great things art can do. The, the, the other thing I think is that I think because of the nature of artists, because your job, whether you're an actor or a writer or a director, is to put yourself into other people's shoes. Mm -hmm. That's what your job is. And because that's something that you practice doing all the time, how do I think from this other person's perspective? It naturally leads us to be, to some degree, more empathetic, to some degree, be more open about different perspectives. And that naturally leads us to want to tell those kinds of stories, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And that's what you hope, that you tell the political story, but you leave the lesson. And most of the times, I'm saying 99% of the times, I feel like whenever there's an actual political um, or social uh, issue highlighted in a film or in a TV show, it is to inform and instruct and possibly change uh, things for the better in our current society. Uh, even if it's shot, even if it's a period piece, it's supposed to feel modern. You know, you watch Handmaid's Tale and like there's, it's, it's, it's set in essence in some otherworldly time, but it echoes powerfully through our current time 
now. And so the, you know, that's the thing that's uh, important if you're going to go the political route with any piece of art is there has to be an end result to have an effect on the society one way or another. Well, um, uh, first of all, Handmaid's Tale is so good. Yeah. It, it, I, it's not one I relish watching. And what <laughs> you, it, How can you relish that? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. And I told Karen, like, when, when, when we watch us, like, I can only watch one episode a night. Yeah. I can't do two. It's so upsetting to me. But it's so beautifully made. But I'll go back to my first point. If Handmaid's Tale wasn't on some level entertaining, if you weren't involved with the right. characters and the stories, the right. politics doesn't matter. You know, like it's the very first job is you got to get my attention and people that set out to, I'm going to make a political film about this issue. That movie's probably doomed. Yeah. I feel that way about all those left leaning films, like the contender and, um, what was it? Oh, the, the lambs for lions, whatever that was. Those are films are so blatantly one side of the political spectrum and they vilify another side of the political spectrum that it does not allow for understanding. Uh, it allows only for judgment. And I, I bristle at stuff like that. You know, the American president, that's a lighter situation, but something like that lions for lambs and, uh, and the other, the contender, it is meant to vilify the other side politically. And I don't like that in my opinion, I, I like a more balanced approach and I bristle at stuff that it's too left-leaning or too right-leaning. I bristle at it. Do you know the, the expressions straw man and steel man arguments? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so for those of you, do, so straw man, are, this is the classic logical fallacy. A straw man argument yeah. is where John and I have an argument, and I will restate his position in the weakest possible way <laughs> yeah. and then destroy it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that is a logical fallacy because I'm so proud of myself for destroying an argument when I set up, it wasn't how John would say it, it's how I just set up a really weak way to say it. Right. Uh, the, the opposite of that is called a steel man argument, which is that what, in a, in, a, in a really good argument, what I should do is articulate the best possible version of John's mm-hmm. argument I can, one that he would go, yes, that I agree with, yeah. and then destroy it. Yeah. If I can destroy the steel man argument, then I've really shown something. I think w- one of the examples that does this, and it's my favorite TV show of all time, is The West Wing. It is so mm. good. Does The West Wing have a liberal bent? Absolutely. Is those my politics? Totally. And yet, they will have a conservative come in and kick the shit out of the main characters yep. in ways that you go, damn. Right. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. I had a discussion once, you know, I'm not... Uh, I, 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 I'm a pro-gun regulation person. I think there mm-hmm. should be some regulations on firearms in this country. And I was having an argument with Hoover, who's come up many times on this show. And I said, you know, because one of the arguments of the pro-Second Amendment uh, NRA is like, well, part of why we have our guns, and this was when Obama was president, is because if the government gets out of control, we need to be able to have a revolution just like in 1776. Right. And I said to Hoover, that's so ridiculous today because how could a bunch of people with, you know, AR-15s go up against tanks and bombers and, and Hoover, who had spent uh, three years mu- embedded with the Mujahid team in Afghanistan during the war against the Soviets, said, you've never been to Afghanistan. Hmm. And I went, damn. <laughs> because, because I was like, you know what? That was a thing I never thought about, right. is that, in fact, my argument was not as nearly as strong as... I thought it was, and that was really good. It made because even if I don't necessarily agree with the point, I, it make it forces me to make my argument stronger. Yeah, Ryan, that was a big question. Yeah, and uh, we went into a lot of stuff. And I got to tell you, 
I love that question. You know, like it, it was challenging. It was difficult. Yep. John and I, I feel like we challenged each other to really yeah. think about some stuff. So I really, really appreciate it. And we like all of your suggestions. Please keep the, the Cinephile Shorts suggestions coming. We really enjoy it. It gives John and I a chance to talk about some other stuff. Sure. And, um, and of course, we really appreciate all of your support on Patreon. It keeps the show going. And so on behalf of John and myself, I will say thank you, all of you and we will see you next time for another Cinephile Short.